Hello, friends, and welcome to a very special episode of That's What She Said. My name is Nathan Shores, my pronouns are she, her, and I am the editor of this podcast. Today's episode will be starting off with a song that Emma J., whose pronouns are she, they, wrote about Galileo Church. Emma is from Alabama and first found us on TikTok before joining our Inside Out livestream worship community. They recently also released an EP, which you can find on Spotify. We'll have a link in the description of this podcast. Emma, take it away. before a loneliness that I cannot describe I wanted more than a church to tell me where I'd go when I well, you know I searched my heart Found the truth I didn't want to see But I let it out to be the truest me And I got shut out unceremoniously Take me in a spiritual refugee No more am I On a boat without a paddle on the sea My tired eye Crying tears of joy all fine found a place to rest its tired feet where I can be the truest form of me the doors of love are open I am free I am free Take me in a spiritual refugee. I wish that I could go back in time and tell that little girl inside the mirror that who she is is just enough. I know she would have really loved to hear. 
would see the rainbow colored parts of me that take me in a spiritual refugee. Thank you, Galileo. Once in a while, a spiritual refugee from Alabama finds us through TikTok and then writes us a song about what that feels like. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading tonight is from Luke chapter 4, and it's a continuation of our readings from the gospel of Luke ever since the first Sunday of Advent back in November, December 2021. Um, and our worship series this time around is called Deep Water. We're contemplating our baptisms. And so this series began with Jesus himself being baptized and the spirit descends and then leads him into the wilderness where he faces trials concerning his power and what he's gonna do with it now. Being the first in recorded history to exclaim, not today, Satan. He wins the match in the wilderness and levels up. Now he's not just full of the spirit as he was at his baptism in chapter four, verse one, but now he is filled with the power of the spirit. And we pick up our reading in chapter four, verse 14. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the spirit, returned to Galilee and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place, chapter 61 by our count, where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, all spoke well of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? Just think on that one for a second. <laughs> he said to them, mm, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to one widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. 
when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way, saying unto them, you can't catch me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm going to take a risk and tell you a story that may make you think less of me. Even more risky, though, you may think that the point of this story is actually the point. And it's not. Let the hearer understand. My spouse and I went to divinity school together, and it was pricey. It was pricey times two. We worked our asses off while we were in school, 90-hour MDivs, top grades, three years. One year, we stapled seven W-2s to our 1040EZ. We were the paid custodians for our church for a couple years. We were gig economy workers before there was a gig economy. Out of school, we shared one full-time job, one measly paycheck so low it made the church paying us blush. So we also worked as substitute teachers for 50 bucks a day. Six months into that first church job, our student loan payments came due, his and hers, a matching set for that pricey divinity school. More than our car payment, more than our rent, more than our tithe, eight and a quarter percent interest. And we started paying, tearing out coupons from the little book Sally Mae sent us, writing out checks, licking stamps, putting them in the mail. We never missed one. We were never late, not once. Some years later, another church, another shared job, and even lower salary because we lived in a parsonage, two kids, and a car somebody gave us because they felt sorry for us. Some more years, now my spouse back in school, still living on one salary, still paying student loans, still never missing one, still never late. Our only goal, pay them off before our own kids would be ready for college. And we did. We were back in Texas by then, well into our 40s. I think we got takeout Chinese food, a real splurge, because really during those years, we did not eat out. We did not eat out anywhere that didn't have a 99-cent menu. In my imagined memory, we sat around our little kitchen table with the kids and clinked our plastic cups in self-congratulation over hot and sour soup. Here endeth the story. Or at least I wish that was the end. A couple years ago, as the 2020 presidential campaign was revving up, I started hearing politicians talk about student loan forgiveness, like wiping out almost $1.6 trillion, that's trillion with a TR, owed collectively by Americans who went to college and borrowed money for it. They talked about how crushing this kind of debt can be for young workers 
how it impedes financial growth and stability for young adults. They talked about how wrong it is for an education to cost that much and how wrong it is for young, inexperienced people to make financial decisions that will be so costly for so long. They interviewed people paying back loans who said it was really a very heavy burden. And they really needed that weight to be lifted so they could get on with their lives. And I thought, no shit, Sherlock. I mean, you see where this is going, right? Are you hating me a little bit right now? Or are you grooving to my beat right now? I bet it depends entirely on your age and your relationship to student debt right now. What I'm confessing here is that while I would say that I am generally a soft-hearted person with a ton of compassion for other people's hardship, there is a cold, hard little stone lodged in my soft heart. I can feel it. It's a sore spot. I pray about it. It's not as big or as rigid as it used to be, but it's there. And maybe no matter what you think about student loan forgiveness, you can sympathize with my sore spot, now that you know my story. Let me tell you another story, two, two more stories, actually, that Jesus liked to tell. Story number one, hundreds of years before Jesus sat down to teach in that Nazareth synagogue, back when Israel was a sovereign nation and not yet an oppressed vassal of anybody else's empire, Elijah, the prophet of God, had a running argument with one of the sorriest kings in Israel's short history. Elijah told King Ahab that he was such a sucky king that his kingdom would suffer drought and famine until he could get his act together, which is a dangerous thing to say to a king. Indeed, Ahab was pretty pissed and had a big old police force to boss around, and so God's prophet Elijah ran away to hide in the wilderness. He did not go there on purpose. He did not plan to fast for 40 days or any days. And so he sought hospitality from somebody living out there, a woman, a widow, a mother of a little boy, destitute after the death of her husband, preparing the literal last of her food for the literal last meal she and her young son would ever eat. But the Bible tells us in 1 Kings 17, in case you want to read it for yourself, that when he asked, the widow shared her meager provisions with the stranger, Elijah, and in turn, Elijah blessed her with the miraculous gift of plenty that God is, you know, kind of famous for giving. In this case, a jar that never ran out of olive oil and a bag of flour that never emptied. And Jesus said from his stool in the Nazareth synagogue, hey, you remember that one about the widow of Zarephath? And his listeners nodded. Well, he said, consider this, Elijah could have fed anybody. He could have fed everybody. Every one of your ancestors was hungry in those years of drought and famine. But God sent Elijah 
to Sidon, beyond our borders, to the widow from, uh, right, Zarephath, not one of Abraham's descendants, not one of us. And she and her son lived happily ever after while your great-great-great-great-grandparents and mine shriveled down to skin and bones before the rain came back and the crops grew again. Think about that. Story number two. A generation after Ahab and Elijah, Israel, still weakened from drought and famine, found itself under siege from the Syrians, an army that had bloodied and beaten their troops many times before. The Syrians were relentless in their pursuit of territory and wealth and workers, conducting the kind of warfare where nobody is exempt from the violence. And during that war, while the battlefields filled up with corpses and villagers hid their children when the victors rode through their streets, one of the great Syrian generals fell ill with leprosy. And it was serious enough and contagious enough that it would strip him of office the moment anybody saw the lesions on his skin. But a captured Israelite child enslaved in Naaman's home, remembered that the power of God could sometimes be channeled through God's select few. Who knows why she decided to share that secret with her enslaver, but she did. There is a prophet in my hometown, she said. His name is Elisha not to be confused with his mentor, Elijah. And Elisha can help you, I'm sure, all you have to do is ask. And Naaman, being terrified that he was going to lose everything he cared about to this ravaging disease, took her advice and rode into town to visit the prophet of God. And Jesus said in his hometown synagogue to the women and men who had watched him grow up in the presence of the rabbis who taught him how to read and how to read scripture, he said, you remember General Naaman of the Syrian army? Yeah. Well, you know, there were lots of people suffering from leprosy in his day. But Elisha, by the power of God, healed only one. Yeah, that one. And then that one's army came back to town and kicked our ancestors' asses. Think about that. Now, far be it from me to critique another preacher's preaching, especially when that preacher is Jesus H. Christ. But do you think maybe he was moving a little fast here? The hometown crowd was totally ready to celebrate his popularity in the surrounding towns. They'd heard about all the great things that he was doing out there. If he just did the same here, they'd throw him a parade. They'd name a park after him, give him the keys to the city. But he came into Nazareth blazing hot that Saturday, saying right out loud his assumption that all they really wanted from him was what they felt they were due as his former babysitters and classmates and friends of the family. Doubtless you will say to me, though they had not said it yet, 
do the cool stuff here that you did over there, doubtless you will cash in your chips. You will ask for what you feel you deserve as the people who raised me up. And those two stories he told, Elijah and Elisha, giving the gifts of God to the not people of God, not children of Abraham and Sarah, not chosen, not religious, not deserving. Well, he found the sore spot in those Nazarene hearts and he dug in with his knuckles, yeah? God doesn't work like that, he said. Thinking as you think, that you deserve to get what you want because you've been faithful, because you've been good, because you put in the hours as part of this religious family. <laughs> you've got it all backwards. This has never been about you getting what you want. It has always ever been about God getting what God wants. And, and yeah, he said, God wants you, Israel, small and beaten down and under the emperor's boot. My being here should be proof enough of that. But God also wants the emperor. And God wants the army that tromps through your town and treats you like trash. And God wants the ones who want to take what little you've got. God wants the ones who don't want you. So, he says, so we're going to call this day one of God getting everything God wants. And while Isaiah said that I would come bearing good news, I'm going to just push back on old Isaiah for a second because God gets everything God wants. And if you don't want that, it's not going to sound like good news to you. It's going to sound like nails on a chalkboard. It's going to sound like a baby with an ear infection on a four-hour flight to L.A. It's going to sound like the all-night juicy rattle of a smoker's cough. It's going to sound like the squealing feedback from surround sound speakers. It's going to make you want to, wait a minute, kill me? Kill me? Holy crap. And that's when Jesus ran out of the synagogue, down the street, out of town, off the road, up the hillside, above the tree line, skidding to a stop on a rocky cliffside with no safe way down. Just, just freeze that scene in your mind's eye for a second. You have to freeze here to get in touch with the rage of that Nazareth crowd. Can you? I can. All I have to do is think about my student loans <laughs> all paid off after years of hard work and perseverance and the very real possibility that some of you within the range of my voice will see your debt forgiven soon. And I want to want that for you. And with most of my heart, I do. I'm not proud of that cold, hard stone of self-righteousness that is lodged in here. It hurts me. I'm just hoping that by telling you about it, it'll lose some of its power, and I don't know, maybe we'll all be a little closer to the ugly truth that we just don't always want what God wants, especially if it means not getting extra credit for being the amazing humans that we are, for being humans who have hung on to this faith by our fingernails for being humans who have clawed our way through coming out, humans who work every day to manage symptoms of illness of every kind, humans who came back to church when the church did not deserve us, 
humans who are trying so damn hard every damn day just to be the people God imagines us to be. Don't we get something for that? Little gold stars by our names in the book of life? Something? Let me tell you one more thing about that time we paid off our student loans. My grandmother had died that summer. She was a greatest generation widow who lived on a veteran's pension and social security. And somehow, somehow that woman managed to bequeath upon her death several thousand dollars to each of nine grandchildren. That same summer, my dad gave us a car it was his company car for a few years, and then my mom drove it for a while, and then it was my brother's turn for a couple years, and now it was finally our turn for the Toyota Avalon. And so we sold a nice, new, sporty car that we loved, and we're still paying off. And we drove the old free car instead. Between that sale of the car and my grandmother's gift, we had enough cash to pay down the principal on those student loans, down to zero with one mailed check. And when I tell it like that, with generational generosity falling on my family like a gentle spring rain, I stop feeling so proud of my accomplishment and start feeling grateful instead. And what if what the world needs more of is Grateful people. People who understand that every good thing they have comes from God's hand. More people who understand that there is no pride of accomplishment in receiving God's acceptance. No deserving of God's love. More people who understand that we live and breathe by grace, by the entirely soft heart of God, where there are no cold, hard stones, no sore spots, no wish to withhold generosity because of who we are or are not, what we've done or have not. What if this is a feature of the baptized life, this recognition of God's vast generosity. We have for so long imagined baptism as an individualistic ritual, the initiation of one soul at a time into the reign of God. And we have taught that baptism connects us, all of us baptized folk, one to another in the widespread and eternal family of God. But what if, upon his baptism, Jesus came to understand that God's love and favor always extended far beyond the border of the Jordan River, into the wilderness beyond that holy water, and likewise far beyond the boundaries of our church, or any church, where people of like mind gather to celebrate God's goodness in their lives? What if our baptisms are a way of saying yes to God's love, not just for us, but far beyond the borders of our comfort zones, 
way past our self-congratulatory pride, out of reach of our clutching, shoving hands. What if baptism is our humble admission that God is going to love who God is going to love? <laughs> Me? Sure. You? Definitely. And, according to Jesus, a whole bunch of other people who occupy a less than soft spot in our hearts. What if baptism is less about getting Jesus into our lives and more about knowing that Jesus will forever pass through the midst of us and go on his way saying, not today, Nazareth, not today. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.